It was in September 1914 that the call went out across parts of Aotearoa to form a Māori contingent to fight in the First World War. Four Māori members of Parliament, Te Rangihirua Peter Buck, Maui Pōmare, Tare Parata and Ta Apirananata, their combined goal was to gather together 500 Māori men to form that first contingent. Now there were mixed reaction to Māori participation. Non-conscription was supported by Princess Te Puia Herangi of Waikato Tainui. The call went out and many Māori men decided to take up arms. Te Papa curator Pua Waikens has spent the past two years researching and rediscovering some of the stories of the men who fought at Gallipoli. I've been given the portfolio of contemporary Māori culture, which is incredibly broad. I effectively think of contemporary culture from the moment Cook set foot here. Uh, so it's, it's, I've looked at 20th and 21st century kind of events and moments in Māori history. And um, when the World War I commemorations were signalled as something that Te Papa was going to um, engage in as an exhibition, I was given the task to go out and research our participation. I've always liked military history and Māori military history. Um, I've, re- I've done an exhibition before about Māori and uniforms and military uniforms mm. and the intertwining of Māori influence in New Zealand military culture. And so it's not that much of a leap to go and do the World War One history. When the declaration of war happened in 1914, August 1914, um, Māori politicians such as Ngata and Carol decided to organise themselves to have a contingent of Māori go over and join in the battle. At that point in time, Māori were not allowed to um, enlist on behalf of New Zealand or on behalf of the British Empire, and the politicians wanted to change that. They saw this as an opportunity to, what they would say, pay the price of citizenship. so around about October 1914, you begin to see men of Māori descent enlist and um, formulate the very first uh, Māori contingent, which was called um, Te Opetuatahi or Te Okufutuatu, uh, which was given... The, te Okufutuatu was the name that was given to the entire kind of um, uh, force of Māori soldiers but Te Opetutahi was the first Māori contingent and they were assembled to go off to Gallipoli. Originally they were given the name Native Contingent, but um, that didn't really stick with the soldiers. They would call themselves the Māori Contingent. I think one of the reasons that the Māori Contingent was not adopted as the formal name was because when it was put onto a badge, the I think Ngata protested that it looked like um, New Zealand Mil- um, Medical Corps, NZMC. Right. So in order to make it look like it wasn't the medics, they went 
the medics, they um, called them the native contingent, so it looked different on the badge. But when they were actually in practice, they called themselves the Māori contingent. So in the exhibition I'm working on, this is what Monty Suter also corrected me on. He goes, because um, when he saw some of it, he goes, they don't really call themselves the native contingent because I have, um, you know, his right, his research had showed that they weren't the native contingent. And sure enough, yeah, they, if you read all their letters, yes. they call themselves Māori contingent. Last year, Puawai was nominated by her whanau to take part in a TEDx talk held in Tauranga. Well, how do I unlock these stories? How do I make it sound different to what James Cowan had written or what has been written subsequently? How do I unlock that kind of beauty? How do I unlock the personal stuff? How do I unlock the stuff that's going to make me cry and make my people feel reconnected again with the story of World War I? So I turned to social media. <laughs> I used the soldier from, from Tipoke, which um, from actually from Makitu. I started with soldiers from the Tauranga region because I'm more familiar with Tauranga. I knew I had a lot more people on my Facebook from Tauranga. And I've got family relations, family connections here, so I'll start with those soldiers. So I started with Roy Devon. Roy Devon was first, he was first brought to my attention in an amazing diary called Home Little Māori Home, written by a private called Ricky Hanakaki, who came from Motaki. It's one of the only published diaries of the native contingent. And in that, he describes Roy Devon, who was one of his friends from Te Aute, one of his old college mates. They were always on guard duty together. Um, they were always um, swimming together and living together. And Ricky Hunter describes when they were together at um, Chinook Beer, the Battle of Chinook Beer. So I put together this profile. The various tribes around here. I'm trying to track the descendants of a World War I soldier called Roy Devon, who's lived in or near Makitu. He was born in 1889, died in 1936 after being struck by a train on the Matapihi Bridge, walking towards Matapihi. His father was Charles Devon, who also lived in Makitu. He was a Teote old boy as well. Roy was severely wounded at Gallipoli during the Battle of Chinookbea and returned to New Zealand in 1916. After war, I believe, he went on to be a successful horse trainer. Roy Devon left behind a wife, and I haven't been able to find out if he had any children or what his wife's name was. I'd like to make contact with any descendants he left. So I put it up, made it, made it public, my first public post on Facebook. And these are some of the responses. This came from his granddaughter, who I didn't know. She just stumbled across the post. Morena, beautiful story about my kuro, and it's the first photo I've ever seen of him. My dad told us the same story. If only he was here to see this pic. The stories are always there when it comes to um, our Māori men serving in World War One, and you have played a role in rediscovering or, you know, breathing life back into um, Māori stories and Māori men that can, that went overseas to Gallipoli. Yeah. You're going to run us through or take us through, walk us through um, a few stories. We got we've got lots of stories to tell you, I think, <laughs> yeah. but we're going to look at I think four images. Um, so Paul, wait, 500 men went over, is that correct? 500 men went over in the Māori contingent, well, 468 to be sure, but um, there were also Māori men who enlisted in what was called the main body, the New Zealand Expeditionary Force main body, which they went ahead before the Māori contingent. And they, today you would call them the mainstream body. There were quite a lot of Māori men who just jumped up and said, Nani, I'm going to go into the main body and go off with my mates and... 
and that's what happened. So there, there, I managed to track at least probably 40, 40 men who were in the exp, uh, in the main body, but because a lot of them enlisted under English names, um, so Pitipi became Philip. Yeah, for an example. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't recorded whether or not they were Maori on their enlistment, on their enlistment forms or attestation forms. It's a bit of a hit and miss trying to track them down. Um, a lot of them are quite invisible. Um, it was the plan. Oh, well. Yeah, well, <laughs> it wasn't considered a thing, eh, back then, your, your um, ethnic identity, uh, unless you were put into your own contingent. Uh, I think because they assumed everybody was Pākehā, because Māori weren't allowed to fight, remember? So they would go under English names, and so they're quite hard to track, but there were quite These a few. These men were brown. <laughs> yeah, brown. These men were brown. Then one of the key things when you look at their attestation forms is that they would record the colour of their eyes, the colour of their hair, and the colour of their complexion. And one of the dead giveaways is dark, dark, dark. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. oh, okay, we might be dealing with someone of the Māori variety here. And then you start kind of, once you got the dark, 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 um, which isn't always an um, indication of a Māori either, because at that point there were uh, lots of um, Māori men who were of mixed um, mm. heritage. So um, once you find them, then you start looking at their name, look at where they're enlisted, look at their next of kin, right. and you start gathering the clues. But 500 plus, yeah, plus maybe an extra 100. In tonight's show and next Sunday's, Pua Waikins will share stories about three Māori men who fought at Gallipoli. She'll tell stories of adventure, patriotism and sadness. We begin tonight talking about a few photos, which you can see right now at lbpageradionz.co.nz forward slash te ahika. So the first picture... I'm going to show you, it comes from the National Library collection, uh, Alexander Turnbull collection. Uh, it's probably one of the most famous pictures of the Māori contingent. It's called Māori Contingent Number One Outpost, Gallipoli, Turkey, taken in 1915, um, taken by James Reed. Um, and what you're seeing here is the arrival of the Māori contingent when they landed on the July. So they jumped off their troop ship onto lighters, which are like little teeny boats to zip them onto the Anzac beach. They landed, I think, around about 1 in the morning on the 3rd of July. And this picture is, a, is supposedly of them waiting up at number one outpost, which became known as Māori, the Māori outpost, um, when they first arrived. They're all in their uniforms, so they've just come from Malta. They're carrying, um, for the kind of train spotters out there, they're carrying the... Um, SMLEs, which are the short Leonfield um, uh, guns or rifles, right. which were considered like a, a bit more of a upgraded version to what the main body were carrying at Gallipoli. They were carrying these rifles called long toms, um, some of which were of dubious quality. Yeah, I, do, I just love this picture. I think because you've seen the faces, uh, you're seeing the faces, and they're they're eager. They've just spent months on Malta dra um, training and drilling. Um, prior to them arriving at Gallipoli, Sir Peter Buck had made an impassioned speech in Cairo, pleading for the Māori contingent to be allowed to go and fight and not just be garrison forces. Yes. Um, it's a very famous speech and quite and a beautifully made speech. 
beautifully what are composed forces, speech. Um, oh, they're like the diggers, the trench diggers, the road builders. Um, so they were the ones who were there to help support the frontline troops. But Peter Buck, who had gone with the Māori contingent as their medical officer, he wanted them to go as fighting troops. So when they were when they first landed in Egypt, he made that speech. Then he said, they, then they were sent to Malta, while the rest um, of the New Zealand main body went off to Gallipoli. So, of course, the main body landed Anzac Day. The Auckland Infantry were the first ones to land. They landed um, later that day on Anzac Day, and on the twenty sixth of April. And they had been there for a few months while the Māori contingent were kept at Malta. And then they finally arrived on the 3rd of July, and this image is apparently taken from that day. Wow. Yeah. So they were kind of like reinforcements. What do you think they're looking at? They look kind of bored to me. (laughs) Um, If you read, there's an amazing um, diary that has been one of my key texts by Riki Hanakakek from Ōtaki. He wrote that they, as soon as they landed, they spent hours just going, walking up and down the hills trying to get to number one outpost. I don't know if it was, person, if it was really hours, but mind you, this was under fire. Um, and they finally arrived in daylight at number one outpost, and they were tired. Um, they, were, they were only given survival rations at that point. I, it's, I just like it. Mm. <laughs> I don't know. They, their faces are really handsome, and they yeah. look young and eager to fight. And these people, there's someone's koro. You know, and about 50 of them wouldn't have made it back. I'm going to talk about some of the men that were there, um, some of the soldiers. Most of my research is focused on the biographical details of um, Māori soldiers that were at Gallipoli. Not so much... Um, I wasn't so much interested in uh, interested in chronicling the participation of the Māori contingent because other researchers and writers have done that mm. fairly bloody well. Um, what I was interested in was hearing the personal stories of these soldiers, the motivations of their service, the implications of their service, like what happened to them after the war. It's basically unpicking, um, unpicking them. If so to speak. Yeah. And um, I became particularly interested in, while I was researching, I would put aside some of the soldiers that came from Tauranga, because that's where I come from. Um, and so I thought, oh, well, I'll come to that later and have a hunt and see if we're related and if I know his whanau. And this particular soldier stood out, um, and I think his people should be very proud of him. His name is George Gardner. He came from Rangiwaia Island, um, and he was about 19 when he enlisted. He went into the Māori contingent and he went to Gallipoli where he served. I haven't actually been able to find too much about him or any reference to him at at Gallipoli. Like, he hasn't appeared in any diaries or anything like that. But what is interesting about him is following the scope of his life as a soldier and a soldier of two nations and the fact that he is buried now in an overseas country. When he enlisted in the Māori contingent, he served for the duration of the war. He became a decorated soldier. I think he won the Kara George Cross, I'm not quite sure, I think. And uh, 
managed to emerge from World War One relatively unscathed. He then went in the 20s to Australia. Um, he travelled over there as a rugby league player. He became a New Zealand representative of the New Zealand rugby league team and travelled UK and Australia and was the man who led the haka. Wow. All these amazing photos of him doing that. Um, <clears throat> and then in the 30s, he must have settled in Australia, early 30s, and he became a professional wrestler. <laughs> and it was... I only found that by looking at one of the um, obituaries of him. So, would he have been in his thirties then, or forty? No, because he was um, nineteen when. Yeah, he, was... he would have been in his. He would have been in his mid mid thirties at that point. Yeah, and apparently he was because he was a big man. There, a lot of the descriptions of him as a league player and as a wrestler was that he was a really tall, large, physically dominating type of man. Wow. Um, at one point, he would play. He played rugby league, I think, barefoot for one of the rep teams or one of the rep games. Um, oh yeah, that's in the twenties, nineteen twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd have been about nineteen twenty four, nineteen twenty four to nineteen twenty six. He was in the New Zealand rugby league team, and then when he became a professional wrestler, he wrestled under the moniker um, Hori Tiki. Uh, Hori, of course, being George. Are and he then, records in the New Zealand Wrestling Foundation in, Aust- in Australian newspapers and. Archived newspapers from Adelaide. True, because he was in Australia then. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of um, references to him in sports pages, which you can now, which are now um, archived. And um, I was wondering what Tiki, where Tiki came from. I thought, oh, maybe that was a that's a Māori word that Australian wrestling people would have been familiar with. But it turns out when I went to go and visit Angiwai that that was his childhood um, nickname, Tiki. Oh. Um, so he wrestled under Hori Tiki and his. His, um, you know, his entry arena entry kind of gimmick was that he would come out in a kākahu and a, a feather cloak. cloak, yeah, feather cloak, and do the haka uh, up in the ring. So it was, it, he sounds like he just he sounds great. He sounds like a he sounds like a lot of fun. But then when war broke out in Australia, he signed up with the Australian Imperial Force and. Um, I think he lied about his age in order to enlist because he must have... 1939 that you're talking about. Yeah, or... yeah. He would have... Um, yeah, it would have been 1939, 1940, he would have enlisted. Now, 1939, he enlisted and um, lied about his age, which he must... He started to lie about his age, which in order to enlist in AIF, but then that made him much too young to enlist in World War One. So he started talking about being only 13 when he, when he was oh, in the mighty contingent. The and maths the, don't add up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In some of his newspaper um, interviews, he was saying, oh, I was only 13 when I went to Gallipoli. And I came across this, like, oh, my God, he was only 13? And so I was double-checking and checked with uh, another researcher, and we kind of established, no, no, he must have been just saying that. In order to enlist. So, how old was too old to go to World War Two? Um, well, in World War One, it was you had to be between the ages of twenty and forty. If you were over a certain age, you would only be allowed to do home duty, ah, okay. uh, home service, or be a home guard. I need to do the proper maths, but but no, it makes sense. Yeah. So he was obviously a, bit too, a little bit too old to do active service, but he went and he went to Libya, and that's he was. Um, suffered a gunshot wound to the abdomen and got peritonitis and he died there and is now buried in Libya. Ko 
quite a few men who went on in, into the 28th Battalion. Um, not many of them went over to do overseas service, but a lot of them were involved in training up um, the new soldiers to go over. Uh, but a lot of them by that time were officers. But yeah, there, there were quite a few, and there were a lot, actually quite a few Māori who were in the Australian forces at Gallipoli as well. Um, so, you know, our people were already quite mobile. They were, they were getting all over the place, and George is one of those one of those individuals, that kind of Māori diaspora, so to speak. Eh? Um, yeah. So I, I travelled to Rangiwai. It's all in that TEDx talk. Yes. And, and went to Rangiwai and saw the carving. And oh, the, yeah. Funny story about the carving. Yeah, the carving was awesome. So I, my uncle Hawata um, Palmer, when I was telling him about my research, he because um, he's one of the kaumata from Matakana, Takana Island, and he goes, oh, you should um, go and talk to the people at Rangiwai because there's a carving there of a soldier from World War One, of um, George Gardner. And I went, ooh, ooh. So when I went home for Christmas, zipped over on my cousin's boat and um, went to go and have a look and met the people. And um, sure enough, there was this carving. And... I had been told by my uncle Hawatze and I also been told by some of the people before I got there that the carving had actually come from Libya, had been shipped back from Libya by his mates as a tribute to him. I was like, oh my golly gosh, Australians carving, that's pretty impressive. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, must be more Māoris in that unit than I thought. And then um, when I got there, Māwete Gardner, who was the queer, who just passed away, she... Um, she corrected us all and said, no, the carving itself didn't come from Libya. Um, his paybook came back with his money as he had earned as a soldier. And um, the father took that and went to Rotorua and got this carving commissioned to memorialise his son. So I thought it was, right. it was quite beautiful. And so they've still got it there and he's dressed in, uh, in his AIF uniform, um, wearing the wearing the belt of a, um, an officer. So it's uh, it's quite lovely that, you know, Māori communities keep these types of memories and they're crystallised in yeah. the carvings and songs and yeah, um, all these kinds of things that help us remember. And his descendants, poor boy? Uh, they're still there, the gardeners. Um, I've been lucky enough to be contacted um, uh, by one of his mokopona, Um so they, a lot of them still live in Rangiwaia. He's, I think he's got a grandson that lives in Australia who I haven't managed to meet yet. So um, he did have children, and he does have descendants. So I've been working primarily with the Rangiwaia people, the people of the um, Rangiwaia um, Marae, so they know what I'm up to. Yep. Um, yep. But, yeah, it'd be good to meet some of his other whanaunga and his descendants, his uri. And that's George Gardner. George Gardner, a bit of a handsome guy. A very handsome. There's so many handsome Māori men. Like, you look at those photos, my <laughs> gosh. Yeah, but so dapper, you know. If yeah. we get to use this picture. So the photo I've got here is comes from Coralie Gardner, from one of his descendants who had heard about my TEDx talk and saw that I had talked to her grandmother, Tamawesi. And so she was very kind and gracious to send me this photo and... Um, I've, I've seen other photos of George. I've got this other photo from Auckland Weekly News of him when he was, he must have been wounded at Gallipoli. Um, but this one, he just, he's very handsome and beautiful. He looks like a gardener to me, a kareana, but um, yeah, I 
feel very um very privileged to be able to ha- handle these stories mm. and these images. No ngai te rangi ngati pukinga me ngati rangi nui te papa curator Paul Wykins. Nei ra te mihi mai o ha kia koe. Special thanks to TEDx Tauranga and te whānau karihana nō te mautere o Rangiwaia.